Well, this is the time that we come together around the Word. What do you believe about the Bible? Is it just some nice thoughts, encouraging words, another book to read? That's not what we think here at Calvary. This week I was reading the State of Theology report from Legionnaire Ministries in the United States. Every four or five years they do a broad survey of evangelicals to see how their theology is progressing. Well, they didn't do very well this time. Uh, 25% of evangelicals in America that were surveyed disagree with the following statement. Only 25% disagree that the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. So, 29% think the Bible uh, has authority to tell us what we must do. We're part of that 29%. We believe the Bible can tell us what to do. We believe that it's the Word of God that's spoken as we gather in His name. It transforms our minds. It changes our lives. It's active and living and does the work for which God sends it. So I want to challenge you to open your Bible. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. I hope you have something to take notes with. I've talked to some of you about Olive Tree Bible app. That's what I used for my daily devotions and also for much of my study. The book of 1 Peter is all highlighted with different colors in the app. Uh, there are several really good Bible study applica applications. If you like to use an electronic Bible, I encourage you to get a good one and to study, to dig deep into the Word of God. Follow along. Today's message is called to suffer following in Christ's steps. When I was about 10, William, William's age, William was sitting over there a minute ago, uh, I came home and told my dad, Dad, I don't think my teacher likes me very much. I was going to a public school in Richmond, Virginia, and I, I just felt that she always blamed me for everything. Now, some of it was my fault, I'll have to admit that, but she didn't like me, and I needed help from my dad. Well, now I am a dad. And I know that my dad was tempted to march right into that school and talk to that teacher, tell her a thing or two. But he didn't do that. He's a godly man, and he believed in the Bible, and he took me to the passage that we're going to look at this morning. In fact, he had me memorize it. And he had me change the word slaves to the word students. Students, be subject to your masters with, to your teachers, he had me memorize, with all respect. And he taught me some of the things that I'm hoping that we will learn this morning as we look at this passage. Let's read 1 Peter 2, 18 to 23. And this is in the English Standard Version on your screen, but you could follow along in your Bible if it's the NIV or another translation, uh, just to enrich what God is saying to us through these short verses. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows or pain while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges fairly. Fairly. Christians are called to suffer. Verse 21 is our key verse. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered with you, for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. There are churches in Brazil that put great big signs up in front that say, Stop suffering. Para de sofrer. I've always wanted to put a sign in front of our church that said, Come suffer with us. In fact, I asked Douglas to make a sign like that and hang it out in front of the church this week, but he didn't feel like that would be a good spending of our money. <clears throat> this was free. Our calling as followers of the suffering servant is to suffer in his stead. Now, that's a complicated statement and it needs to be worked out. So let's look at what the passage says. Three parts to any good Bible study. Observation, interpretation, and application. What does it say? What does it mean? And what does it mean for me? How do I live this truth? And we're going to look at those three things today. First of all, what does it say? I'm not going to put this on the screen on purpose because I want you to look at your own Bible and ask the Holy Spirit, what is this saying? And if you find that I have said something it doesn't say, please call me to account. It starts with the word servant or slave. This is the idea of a house servant, someone who lives in your home to take care of your domestic affairs and probably just earns their room and board or a very small salary. Peter has just told us that we are to submit to every human institution, emperors, governors, or whoever they send, we were submitting. So last week's message was our calling is to submit. Following Jesus means to humble ourselves, become obedient like he was, and submit to those that God has placed over us, even if it's the emperor of Rome that's going to take off your head. Now he goes to the very lowest point on the totem, totem pole. Slaves. Servants. And if this is applicable for slaves, it's applicable too for children to their parents, for husbands and wives, for citizens of a country, for students in a classroom. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect or out of fear for God. I like the way the NIV translates this, that with respect to God, in fear of God's sovereignty, Submit yourself to your masters, knowing that it is God who has placed you where you are. God gave you your boss, your teacher, your situation, whatever it is. And because you believe that, you can submit quietly to your master. But then Peter pours a little more water on the altar and he says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And I looked up that word in the Greek this this week, just to see what it said, because it's translated various ways in various translations, and it mean, it's the root word of the, of the disease scoliosis. Remember what scoliosis is? It's when you have a spine that's crooked. He's talking about twisted people. He's talking about mean people, people who are bent toward their own good and hurt others for themselves to advance. It's a person that you would have every right to take to court. 
But because you follow the suffering servant who suffered silently, you don't. I know this is a hard message, but I'm taking it right from the text, and that's why I had you open your Bible. Verse 19. This is a gracious thing. Now, gracious thing is the actual word grace. This is grace. This is goodness in you, through you, from God. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows, or the NIV says pain, while suffering unjustly. So you are mindful of God. You are conscious of your position before the holy throne of God and his total sovereignty over every detail. And so you suffer quietly the pain of injustice. Do you know God is sovereign? If that is true, there is no such thing as luck, good or bad. There is no such thing as an accident out of God's control. God is sovereign. He is fully in control. Everything that happens has His permission. We do reap what we sow, right? God is not mocked, man. Whatever a man sows, he also reaps. But grace overcomes karma. Do you know what karma is? So many people live by karma. I'm having a hard time because I did something bad, maybe in a former life. You reap all the bad attitudes that come back on you in bad things. My friend, God is the God of grace. He pours out His goodness on those who deserve it and those who do not. He causes His rain to fall on the crops of the just and the unjust. And He says to us who claim to follow Him that we must be the same way. Don't give back in the same way that someone gives to you. Give back in the way you have received from God, receiving His goodness and distributing it freely as He has done for you. Let's be mindful of Him. Verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? We're talking about credit. We're talking about grace being added to you as a son or a daughter of God, even to your heavenly account. See, Peter heard Jesus say on the, on the mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are you when you are persecuted and mistreated and when all men speak evil of you because of me. He says even, Rejoice! Be happy! Leap for joy! Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. There is credit to the person who because of his mindfulness of God and the grace she or he has received from Christ suffers quietly with an eye on the throne saying, Lord, this hurts, but I want to become like you. I want to express you in the world. I talked to a member of our church this week whose boss makes up lies about him. And he has been quiet. But guess what? When that boss needed prayer, who did they ask? I need your prayer. He knows. He sees Jesus in that person, in that attitude. The person is shining with this grace of suffering injustice quietly. See, we receive grace from God. And then we humble ourselves like Jesus did and we spread it in the world. 
if when you do good, the end of verse 20, and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God the Father loves to see God the Son. And everywhere He's expressed, God takes notice and He rejoices and He takes pleasure when you look like Jesus. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Do good without worrying about the suffering that will result. See, we're not talking about flagellating ourselves. We're not talking about seeking suffering. We're talking about not counting the cost, not stopping doing good because it might cause suffering. So often, we don't do what we should because it couldn't be God's will that we suffer, right? Or we do what we shouldn't because how could it be wrong when it feels so right? Remember that song? God wants me to be happy all the time. And that's a lie. The key verse is verse 21. For to this you, you plural, you followers of Jesus, you elect exiles have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus said, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, that means denying your own happiness and comfort and security sometimes, take up his cross and follow me. Remember 1 Peter 2.9? We were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the calling Peter's referring to. In our salvation, we were called out of the darkness of self-absorption and sin into the light of Christ, which means now I'm following you and not my own gut. Christ suffered for you, not so you could have a happy, painless, pleasure-filled life. Can I say that again? Christ suffered for me, so, not so that I could have a happy, pleasure-filled life, but so that I could become like Him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, when Christ calls a person, He bids him come and die. See, we take Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for the good of those who love God and who have been called according to his purpose, as meaning, wow, God wants me to be happy. God wants my good. God wants me to have a nice life. That's true in the long eternal sense. But the real purpose is in verse 29, those he foreknew, he also predestined that they should be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good that Paul's talking about in verse 28. Everything works to make you more like Jesus. And that might mean having stripes on your back like Peter and John got in Acts chapter 5. How did they react? They got put in jail and then released and instead of running and hiding, they went back to the temple to preach, knowing they would be arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin again. And then in this little teeny phrase, after Gamaliel says, leave these guys alone, what do they do? Okay, let's flog them. You know what flogging is? It means they took off their shirts and they got out a whip and they beat them until they were bloody. We don't expect that, and I'm glad we don't have to. 
But how did they react? They rejoiced that they had been found worthy to suffer for the name. That's the guy that's writing this. That's the guy that's writing this. Rejoice. You've been made a little bit more like Jesus because you didn't suffer for doing something stupid. You suffered for obeying the command to preach the word to all creatures. If you follow Jesus as an elect exile, you should plan to suffer. Paul said, be filled up. He filled up in his body what was lacking of the sufferings of Christ. That doesn't mean Christ's work was unfinished. That means he calls us to participate in the payment, the unjust payment for the results of other people's sin, for his glory and for our great joy. By the way, don't think that suffering after your sin has anything to do with this, right? If you're suffering for something you did that's sinful, that's a different story. That's what Peter's saying. There's no credit in that. There's no grace in that. Jesus paid it all and made you worthy of being like him. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Oh, we can't say that about ourselves ever, can we? Ever. But I think what Peter's saying here is do good. Speak truth. Obey the Holy Spirit. Submit out of reverence for God. That's the good that we're supposed to do. And not worry about the consequences. We are not to seek suffering, but neither are we to manipulate the circumstances in order to avoid it, which is what we do so often. See, deceit has been found in my mouth because I like to avoid humiliation. So I try to make myself look a little bit better to you so that you'll think better of me and I won't be humiliated. And if I were to confess, not in every group or situation, but confess freely, then I would receive his grace that then I could give to all of the rest of those around me. On to verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We're memorizing Isaiah 53 at home, and we're on verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. I've noticed that sometimes I can grit and bear it, but then later I slander the person who did it, or I gossip, or I complain to somebody else, and I do open my mouth, and I ruin that moment of grace to say, Lord, I want to be more like you. I trust you with myself. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He said, not my will, but yours be done. All right, so what does all this mean? That's what it says. I've worked my way through verse by verse, phrase by phrase. I hope I've been faithful to the text to some degree. If I haven't, you let me know. But I believe this passage can work us toward a theology of suffering. See, we all start out with a prosperity heresy. We all think that coming to Jesus is going to make my life happy. And it does. 
It does. It gives you joy even in suffering. It releases the burden of your guilt and shame and sin. Gives you freedom through obedience. It does make you happy. But it also calls you to suffer with him in his stead, walking in his footsteps. I started my own journey toward a theology of suffering one day when I had a bike accident. I was in a hurry to meet my dad, who was a missionary pilot in Colombia. I was going around a corner of a dirt road, and I slid my bike out because I was going too fast. And as I lay there in the dust with my hip and my elbow bleeding, I thought, what have I done that God is punishing me for? And my little 11-year-old mind ran back over the last few days, and incredibly as it seems, I couldn't think of anything. And God started to show me that life is hard. That sin has caused pain and suffering and death, but that that does not stop God's purpose from being fulfilled and that he uses every ounce of pain to make me more like Jesus, to stretch my faith in God's goodness even when it hurts. He has called us to walk through this life in pain by, by faith in Christ. And so I've pulled out three pillars of a theology of suffering from these verses. And here they are. Followers of Christ are called to suffer injustice quietly as he did. That's what verse 21 says. To this you have been called. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. But Paul also says it in his last letter to Timothy before he's beheaded by a Roman emperor. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. If you want to be holy, you will be persecuted. If only by your friends who make fun of you for not going in the same direction they're going. Philippians 1.29 is even stronger. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Do you believe that? Then why are we so surprised when suffering comes? It has been granted to us not just to believe in Jesus, but to follow in His steps through suffering, and especially suffering unjustly. I started reading again the story of Adoniram Judson, uh, our family read this book a couple of years ago, To the Golden Shores. It's a great, big, thick missionary biography that every Christian should read. The first modern American missionary, Adoniram Judson, went to India and then was kicked out of India, couldn't stay there, and so decided to go to the unreached land of Burma, which is today's Myanmar. He stayed 33 years without coming home and 44 in all. This is how he asked his father-in-law, for his wife's hand in marriage. This is his proposal letter to his girlfriend's dad when he was getting out of seminary. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. 
whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of seeing, of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to our, her Savior from heavens saved through her means, he, I'm sorry, heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Question mark. Her dad said yes. Actually, he said, she can decide. And she said yes. That was dear Anne, who for 21 months visited Adoniram in a Burmese jail every day so he didn't starve of lack of food. And then six months after he was released, she and her baby died from exhaustion and yellow fever in Burma. He married two more times, had 10 children, buried half of them. Some of them he wasn't even with when they died because he had left them in Burma because he was trying to get better in New England. And he ended up dying at 61 at sea, buried off the side of a ship. Is that the way God honors his servants? Yes, it is. Because that's what happened to his son. In the meantime, Adoniram Judson translated the entire Bible into Burmese. He planted churches all over that country. And a hundred years later, the Baptist Association of North America counted 3,700 Baptist churches with over one million Burmese converts. Was it worth it? Oh, yes. So worth it. And he did it because he was willing to do the right thing and suffer, suffer pain, suffering, unjust suffering in the name of Christ. The second pillar of a theology of suffering is that God is pleased and credits grace, a gracious thing, Peter calls it, to those who through Christ become like Christ for quiet, unjust suffering. There is credit in suffering unjustly. Now again, not to seek it, not to buy a bed of nails to lie on or a whip to flagellate yourself. That's not what Peter is teaching. What he's teaching is submit quietly before God's throne, which is sovereign, and following in Christ's steps and believe that God gets glory through you and in you from that suffering. Verse 19 and 20 again, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows or pain while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it when you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. James 1 says, count it all joy when temptations and trials crowd into your lives. Why? Because those are producing Patience, endurance, and character and hope in your lives. Romans 5, 3-5 says the same thing. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, Paul writes this. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's the credit. That's the gracious thing. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. 
That's being mindful of God. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The third pillar is that when we that we can entrust ourselves to God, who is sovereign and judges justly, seeing all. God knows all the details. He knows your anxious thoughts. He knows how afraid you are of suffering, and I am. He sees it all, and He judges fairly. The Bible says that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And that's why it commands us not to take vengeance, but leave it in the hands of God. Verse 18 of 1 Peter 2 says that we have reverent fear, and so we submit to God. Or we're mindful or conscious of God in verse 19. And then in verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what we're to do. To be mindful of God, submit to those that are over us, suffer the consequences, and then entrust ourselves to him over and over and over. So, application. What should we live? How should we live differently in the world because of these truths? Four simple ways. Number one, be conscious of God. See, in 1 Peter 1, we learned that we are to set our hope fully on the grace to be given us at the appearance of Jesus Christ. Full hope on Him, knowing that that credit will be brought to us in Jesus. Be mindful of God and commit your way to the one who judges, judges justly. Let pain remind you of God's sovereignty. Let pain wake you up, like I did lying in that road that day, that God is in control even when it hurts. And He's doing something in us. Secondly, submit. Do good to even the twisted in respect for God's sovereignty. We are called out of the darkness of selfish protection, self-absorption, into His marvelous, loving light. Ephesians 5.21 tells us to submit to one another out of reference for Christ. Sometimes that hurts. Sometimes it cramps your style. Submission, because of our consciousness of God, then creates suffering. Expect to suffer for following Jesus. See, here's the problem. We make our decisions based on the avoidance of suffering. It's not that you seek suffering, it's that you don't avoid it. You decide to go back to the temple and preach when you just got released from prison. Paul decided to go to Jerusalem even when multiple prophets in the church said, you're going to suffer, you're going to suffer. He said, it's okay, I'm ready to die. And he kept going. He did not avoid the possibility of suffering for Christ and thus disobey what he was convinced God had asked him to do. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives his resume as an apostle. And I, I had to laugh when I read this in my devotions this week because I thought about all the people that claim to be apostles, right? People now are saying, well, I'm apostle so-and-so, so please call me apostle. Well, what are their resumes? What do they expect? What do they want from everybody? How do they want to be treated? Listen to Paul's resume. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five times he got beaten, 39 times. That's because 40 was supposed to kill you. So they did 40 minus one, so you'd be almost dead, but not quite. Five times. That's just the beginning. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Is that what you expect when you decide to serve Jesus? I don't. I don't. But I need to learn to. See, we naturally expect to avoid suffering. We justify saving our money instead of giving it away so as to avoid suffering in old age. Some of that's responsibility. Some of it might be disobedience. We don't witness to people so that we can avoid being embarrassed. There's a group leaving from these doors in about an hour to go down to Paulista and tell people about the hope that we have in Jesus. I hope some of you will join them and go in faith over fear. We skip exercising, forgetting that no pain, no gain. I caught myself doing that this week. I did two, two sets and thought, oh, that's enough. We're quick to complain or lash out when we don't get our rights. We stretch the truth so we don't look so bad. And we give in to temptation because we believe the lie that since God loves me, He wants me to have what I want. Commit your way to the one who judges justly. Don't complain. Commit your way. Keep committing. Keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. So four words. Conscious of God. Submit to those you are under. Suffer injustice quietly. And commit. Two C's and two S's. Hopefully this is easy for you to remember. Conscious, submit. Suffer, commit. Conscious, submit. Suffer, commit. Be conscious of God. Submit to those that are over you. Suffer the consequences quietly and unjust, unjustly. And then commit your way over and over and over to the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Nick Ripkin has written a book called The Insanity of God. Strange title. Nick and his wife were missionaries to Somalia, that land that produces pirates. And they noticed that the people that came to Christ were being persecuted and even killed because of their relations with them as Americans. And they pulled out and said, we're going to leave this little church and hope that it can grow without us because we're doing more harm than good. But he learned with them that Christians suffer. And he thought, I've got to bolster the church to learn to suffer uh, as Christ wants it to. And so he began to travel and meet Christians all over the world who were under persecution. And he found out that he didn't have anything to teach them. They had everything to teach him. And the insanity of God is the fact that the church just grows and becomes more beautiful the harder it is beaten and persecuted. He tells the story in The Insanity of God, and I hope you can all read this book. But he tells the story of a father in communist Russia whose pastor had been put in prison for being a, a Bible teacher. And he didn't want his children to grow up without the Bible, so every night after dinner he would get out his Bible and he would read it and 
the best he could explain it to his children and they would discuss it. And his neighbors found out that he was doing this and they began to come. And more began to come. And pretty soon he had 75 people gathered in his living room at night reading the Bible and talking about how to obey it. And the authorities found out. And they surprised him one evening and put handcuffs on his wrists and took him a thousand miles away from his home and put him in a prison for political prisoners. And Nick Ripken tells of how he was in that cell all by himself with water dripping down the concrete and said, Lord, what is my mission here? And God gave him a song, his very own song. He called it his, his something song. I can't remember right now. But anyway, his praise song to Jesus. Every morning when the sun would come up and shine through his bars, he'd stand in front of that door and he'd sing his very own worship song out loud to Jesus. The other prisoners would yell and bang the bars and throw things and get upset. But every day, faithfully, he would stand and sing his song. But he said, I I needed to do something else. So every time he found a scrap of paper and a little piece of charcoal or anything to write with, he would write out his memory verses on that paper and he would reach out as far as he could and he would stick it to the wet pillar outside of his bars so that someone coming along might see the word of God and it might be planted in their soul. The guards would see it and they'd open up his door and beat him with rods and they knew he was doing that song and that verse. And so eventually... They decided to kill him. They said, you've been judged and found guilty of treason, and we're going to shoot you with a firing squad. And they marched him out of the prison, down the long corridors, and out into the patio. And as they lined up the soldiers to shoot him, somebody in that prison started singing this man's song. And other people joined him. And pretty soon, 1,500 men were singing a love song to Jesus. And those soldiers knew that if they shot that man, they would just start a movement by creating a martyr. My friends, that's what it means to follow in his steps and know that wherever you are, you can shine the grace of Jesus by quietly submitting to whomever God has placed over you with your eye on the throne, entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly, and he will make his kingdom come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, root out of us any vestiges of prosperity heresy that somehow we can buy from you any favors at all, but that you have purchased us with your blood so that all things will work together to make us more like you. Help us follow in your steps by your spirit that is guiding our hearts and our minds and our mouths so that your will would be done and not ours. Your kingdom would come for your glory and our great joy in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.